Churches change all the time. You change. Some people, you, uh, it's, it's quite hilarious. You, you, go, you go Monday morning to work and you wonder, well, I wonder, I wonder what this person's hair color is going to be this week. You know, they're, they're constantly changing something, right? They close, change your clothes, their hair color changes, you know, health changes, the weather changes. Society changes. And to be honest, some of these changes make us nervous. For example, I was really nervous uh, during the presidential elections of President Obama. Here's a picture. I mean, his whole slogan, President Obama's whole slogan was change. That really made me nervous. And I, and I can guarantee you it has made a majority of the United States nervous, which is why the Congress has switched to Democrat to Republican. <laughs> he made the country very nervous with his changes. And so we see society change. We don't know how we're going to fit in in this changing society. A lot of people like things to stay the same, but things don't stay the same. In the last couple of decades, the, the pace of change is, is just growing. It's accelerating. It's getting faster. The reality is change is everywhere. That is reality. There is nowhere you can go where there is not change. And change is difficult. Change, by the way, is not always good. Some young people think that. You guys, you younger people, you might think change is good. Change is not always good. Change is often bad. And change is sometimes dangerous. So how do we survive constantly changing circumstances? And when that is reality, we live in a changing world, you live in a changing body, you live in a changing family, and you live in changing churches. You live in a changing job situation. Well, in such a world, what hope do we have for survival then? What hope is there for survival? And to answer this question, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. Daniel gives us some wonderful answers to this question. Is there anything unchanging? And, and of course, there is something that's unchanging, but most things do change. So how do we survive in this situation? Daniel went through a lot of change. You read the book of Daniel, there was a lot of changing in, in his life and in the world at large. And he survived it. So let's see what we can learn from this wonderful book. Let me just start off by giving you an introduction here, okay? If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, I hope this helps. There's 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. And you could chop the book in half, literally chop the book in half, and it'll give you an idea because there's two parts. In the first part, in chapters 1 through 6, it's narrative, and each chapter could be taken individually because there's six stories in those six chapters. Some wonderful stories. We love those stories of Daniel's three friends being thrown in the furnace and Daniel thrown in the lion's den as two examples there. But in chapter 7 through 12, it, it kind of backs off, if you will, and gives you some big picture stuff, some wonderful prophecies there. And so it's prophetic. In nature, it's consisting mostly of visions about the future. Some of those visions, by the way, have already taken place. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But some of these things haven't taken place yet. These are things that God says will happen. And by the way, God doesn't lie. To him, the end is the same as the beginning. God is not confined by time, as you and I are. So these things will happen. So we need to ask the question again, is there anything unchanging in this world, and how do we survive in a world of changes? Well, the first thing that we see in the book of Daniel is that leaders change. Leaders change. 
Uh, that is certainly one of the things that ought to just jump off the pages and hit you right between the eyeballs and knock you out because you see it over and over again. In fact, I put a picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar here in Babylon for you. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the first leader that comes up in the book of Daniel. The story of Daniel mostly takes place in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. It's in the 6th century B.C., that's before Christ. And under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire reached its largest, excuse me, reached its largest size, even bigger than the Assyrian Empire or the Egyptian Empire. I've given you a map here on the screen. You can just see just how big the Babylonian Empire became. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar, was, he wasn't just interested in his military superiority. Well, that was important to him. That wasn't his only interest. He was also interested in cultural renewal. Uh, he, he was a bit of a Renaissance man before his time, if you will. And, and you, you get a bit of his taste, if, uh, the taste of his pride, if you will, uh, over the pride that he had in rebuilding Babylon. He brought Babylon to, a, to an interesting height. A place where the rest of the world looked up to this city. This was an awesome city. And you look at chapter 4. Sorry, uh, turn over to chapter 4, verse 30. You get just a picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar's pride here in his rebuilding of Babylon. Look at this. Put your eyeballs on the page, please. These aren't my words. These are God's words. And He is the living God. He is alive and He is speaking to you now through His Word. Listen to His words, please. Daniel 4, verse 30. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Can't you just see Nebuchadnezzar's pride there? Jumping off the page. By the way, he had indeed transformed Babylon. Here's, some, here's another picture for you. He transformed Babylon into the greatest city of the known ancient world there. And even today, it's if you were to go there, you'd see its ruins. Its, it's ruins spread out over 2,000 acres. They, they actually formed the largest archaeological site in, in Mesopotamia. Here's another picture for you. The city of Babylon had ancient walls with eight great gates. The entrances had vivid colors such as bright red and, and white and blue. Here's another picture for you. Great avenues entered into the city. They, they said, they, they, well, you can see them. They're 60 feet wide, 20 meters wide. They led up to the gates of these cities. Nebuchadnezzar built tall temples, massive temples. You can see one off in the background. There's one. Uh, these massive temples, some have said maybe perhaps as many 50 temples in Babylon, worshiping various gods. Some of them were uh, probably 300 feet to, to 100 meters high. And this was all before the age of you know, modern cranes and modern building, right? He also built magnificent new palace, famous hanging, hanging gardens of Babylon. There's someone's representation of it. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In human eyes, it was something to be proud of, and Nebuchadnezzar brags about it here in chapter 4, verse 30. But all these things were Nebuchadnezzar's work. He was a great man. He truly was a great man, but like all men before him, the Bible says he came and he went. The great Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, died in 562 B.C. Like everyone before him, he came and he went. 
And by the way, the Bible here in Daniel says he was succeeded by other rulers. And the point is to show us that leaders change. Leaders change. By the way, you mentioned some of them here. You have Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. Leaders change. What's the point? Why is Daniel bringing this up? Why is God pointing this out to us? The point is the leaders change. We, we often want to put our trust in leaders, don't we? That is our, our natural tendency. We want to put our trust in a person. We want to trust the new leader of the new government. We want to trust a pastor. We want to trust our boss. Or, you know, we want to trust our spouse. We want to trust someone, right? That is our tendency. We want to trust someone. But the reality is, my friends, people will let you down. They will disappoint you. Leaders change. Here's another picture. Because we see... We, we, this is a picture coming from chapter 2. In, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream... Uh, is about the passing nature of leaders. That's, that's the, one of the primary points of this dream. And here's a picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In his dream, he sees a large statue of a man built with different building materials. By the way, these building materials crumble when it's struck by a rock. This rock comes and hits the bottom of the statue, and the statue just falls apart into its various pieces. And of course, this dream troubled the king. He didn't understand it. He asked his wise men, interpret the dream or you die. <laughs> oh, what? We can't do that. They, of course, they couldn't interpret the dream. Daniel's God was the only one who could. So Daniel interpreted the dream. He, he told the king the dream and he interpreted it. And, of course, that shows us that God alone understands the dream because God's the one who gave King Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and then he used Daniel to convey the interpretation and the dream itself. And we can see this in chapter 2, verse 31. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 31. Remember, this is showing various kingdoms and leaders and, and how they change. And, of course, the first one is Babylon. Look at chapter 2, verse 31. Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a, great, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, He has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Okay, so you look at that there. You see the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. Does that make sense? 
Daniel's interpreting the dream because God told him the dream. All right, you all with me, class? In case you're not getting it, the picture's up on the screen, okay? All right, class, let's move on to the second part. You ready? Verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So there's a picture giving the explanation, if you will. You see the, the first part of gold is the Babylonian Empire. The next one, of course, history shows us after the Babylonian Empire came the Medes and the Persians. They conquered Babylon. And then the, the Empire of Greece. And then the Roman Empire came. And, of course, they no longer exist. And the one final empire, which, of course, will be Christ's kingdom. And that will be forever. So history shows us that this came to be true. All those things, except for the last one, has come to be true so far. So because you can see that God's word has come true in the first ones, you know his word will come true in the last one. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is the stone that was not created. And he will destroy, he will conquer, and he will reign forever. So in these worldly kingdoms that will come, nothing uh, they, they, they became of nothing because of God and His everlasting kingdom. Now, there's a valuable lesson for us in this. I hope you're not just sitting here thinking, well, that's great. That's, you know, that's really interesting. I love ancient history. I love ancient history, but that's not the point. Whatever power you exercise, my friend, didn't come from you. It's very easy for us to become self uh, you know, self-dependent and self-proud and, and, and uh, you know, we, we love to build up our so-called self-esteem. But the power that you exercise didn't come from you. The intelligence you have is not your own. The abilities you have are not your own. The wealth you have is not your own. Any possessions you have are not your own. It's not something you can keep either, by the way. The Bible says... You brought nothing into this world, and you can carry nothing out of this world. So you're going to keep your power for as long as God wants you to keep it, and then there's coming a day of judgment, just as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. 
So Christian, you must not be proud about your achievements and your authority, whatever little or great they might be. After all, think about it. It is God is the one. He is the one who lifts up and He is the one who puts down. Do not forget that truth. In the event that you might become ambitious for some kind of a power, remember both these truths, my friends. Power has a passing nature to it. Power has a passing nature. So remember the passing nature and remember the judgment that falls upon, uh, upon uh, the one who seeks power. And before you become consumed with wanting to climb the power ladder, consider the book of Daniel as a warning, my friend. Consider the book of Daniel as a warning. Everyone who seeks power for his or own sake will fall. Did you hear me? If you seek power for your own sake, you will fall and you will be judged. You say, well, what about Daniel? He, he had great power. Power seemed to seek Daniel out. That's the difference. Daniel didn't go and seek power. He wasn't trying to climb the so-called corporate ladder, the power ladder. Power sought him. He didn't seek power. One of the, the things this book teaches us about survival in a changing world is that earthly power is not going to remain. Leaders change. Governments change. Countries change. Leaders come and leaders go, but someone else stands in stark contrast to the changing leaders of this world in this book. Do you know who that is? Do you know who it is? It's Yahweh. Yahweh, all capital letters, Lord. And that's one of the main truths I think that God wants us to teach us about Himself. Yes, leaders change, and as you can see here, governments and countries change. We are not assured that New Zealand will stay as it is. Okay, We might think we're secure on this little island way out here you know, at the bottom of the South Pacific, as if, hey, we're safe. Are we? Nobody is safe. But there is something that doesn't change. It's God. God doesn't change. Theologians call it immutability. God is immutable. He doesn't change. And this is one of the truths that ought to be jumping off the pages of Daniel. Let me just give you a flavor of this truth that God does not change. Look, look at Daniel chapter 2. Here in Daniel chapter 2, after God revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning, and He shows it to King Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, Daniel prayed. Daniel gave a wonderful prayer. Look at this wonderful prayer. Daniel 2, verse 20. Daniel 2, verse 20. Look at this. This is an awesome prayer. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for His wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is the darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank You and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of You, for You have made known to us the King's demand. That's an awesome prayer. 
you see here that Daniel acknowledges the truth that God does not change because he is immutable. We, if we move on in Daniel chapter, two, Daniel chapter 2, we find after Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his, his dream and the interpretation, notice the king's response. Look at Daniel 2, verse 46. Here's the king's response in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then I've given you a photo here of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. So this is coming, of course, from Daniel chapter 3. And the three Hebrew men are preserved amidst the, the fiery furnace. Even the guys, the soldiers who threw them in the fire were, were killed as a result of the fire. But notice what the king says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 29. Look at Daniel 3, verse 29. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of, sadly, here's the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap. Why? Notice what he says. Notice it. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. God doesn't change. He is immutable. Then in chapter 4, the king writes a letter to all the peoples of the kingdom. And I want you to notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Again, He's acknowledging that God doesn't change. He is immutable. And in His letter, He also mentions that He, uh, he goes mad. Because He became very proud, uh, He actually became like an animal. And he lived like an animal, the Bible says, for many years. And eventually God restores the king's sanity, and he restored his, his throne. And when he comes back to the throne, it actually he was prompted to acknowledge God as, as a result of living like an animal for all these years. Look what Nebuchadnezzar says. Here is the proud king of the Babylonian Empire. This is amazing. Look at these words. Chapter 4, verse 34. Chapter 4, verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and the among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason to return to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and noble resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise 
and extol and honor the King of, of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Ooh. The next picture, there's a picture of, which is coming from chapter 5. God, once again, demonstrates that all leaders will pass. Leaders change. They don't live forever. And the context here in chapter 5 is one of King Nebuchadnezzar's successors was Belshazzar. He holds this this, uh, banquet, this feast for his nobles. And during the feast... As they're just they're making a mockery of God, they're blaspheming God. They brought out the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. They're just making a mockery of God. And this hand appears and writes these words on the wall, and they can't read them. Nobody can interpret them. And so Daniel is is brought in to interpret the writing. And I want you to listen to what Daniel says in chapter five. Chapter five, verse eighteen. As Daniel comes in to interpret the dream to to those who were there, look what Daniel says, chapter 5, verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Wow. That is an amazing statement by such a proud and great man. And then our next picture here is of Daniel in the lion's den, which is, of course, coming from chapter 6. And in chapter 6, there is this story again of Daniel who refuses to pray to any other god except Yahweh, and because of that he's thrown into the lion's den. And after Daniel, is, uh, the king comes to him the next morning, and he, he, he's surprised to see Daniel alive. He brings Daniel up out of the lion's den unharmed. And King Darius, or Darius, however you say it, makes a similar confession to King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at chapter 6, verse 26. Chapter 6, verse 26. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his kingdom shall endure to the end. Do you see what's happening through the scenes here? These six chapters? Throughout these scenes, leaders change, governments change, and every king originally believes that he is the, he's the all-powerful one and that his kingdom is, is going to endure. But what happens? Did Nebuchadnezzar endure? Did, did Darius endure? Did Cyrus endure? Do their kingdoms endure? Of course not. Yet God in His gracious sovereignty here 
helps to slowly show these kings and and helps them to recognize that this is not the case. (laughs) But that God's own kingdom alone is the one that will endure forever. God is the mighty king who has no equal. So we could summarize the whole book of Daniel like this. Okay? Are you listening? Here's how you could summarize the entire book of Daniel. Leaders and governments change, but God is always the same. Leaders and governments change, but God is always the same. But there's two more important questions we need to ask here. How did Daniel survive in a changing world? And how can you survive in this changing world? Because it's very easy for us to look at this book and, and we, could, we could forget the title character of the book, who is, of course, Daniel. So far we've said very little about Daniel, haven't we? So let me introduce you to him quickly. Daniel was probably taken into captivity in 605 B.C., He was probably a part of that first wave of exiles that were taken to Babylon. He was taken from his his family, his homeland, as a young child. He may have even seen his father and his mother killed before his eyes. I don't know. But here he is as a young man, as a child, taken from his homeland. Many of his his, uh, friends and family were probably killed. He's taken to this foreign land. And by the way, this was 10 years before Ezekiel went uh, to Babylon, and it was almost 20 years before Jerusalem finally fell under the Babylonians. And so by the time we get to chapter 9 of Daniel here, almost 70 years have passed since the events that take place in chapter 1. Daniel's a young boy in chapter 1. Therefore, Daniel was an old man by the time it comes to the end of the book. And so throughout these changing times, the the threats faced by Daniel and others were great. He was placed in the king's court, and may I remind you, that was a dangerous place to be. It was a dangerous place to be in the king's court. After all, think about it, when you play with the big boys, you can get hurt. You understand that? When you play with the big boys who don't have scruples, who don't have morals, who will do anything to protect their back and protect their neck, you can get hurt. Well, that was certainly one of the occupational hazards, if you will, of Daniel's job. So we need to ask the question, how can we survive? How can you survive in a changing world? Let me just give you some practical helps from this wonderful book, okay? I suggest you write these down. Meditate upon these truths this week. Lesson number one. It is possible to live a faithful life, even when surrounded by worldly influences, if one sets one's mind to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Some of these things I've I've adapted and and, uh, taken uh, from the ESV Study Bible, uh, which is a wonderful study Bible. If you don't have one, I recommend you buy one, which you can buy from Grace Books. But anyway, in chapter 1, we first learn that Nebuchadnezzar decides to bring some young, able Israelites into his court to serve the kingdom. Uh, Please turn to Daniel 1. And the the court officials that were set up by King Nebuchadnezzar 
they, they're looking over these men. They, they decide everything for these young Israelites, including even what they're to eat and drink. They're the ones who set the diet for Daniel, his friends, and all the other Israelites. But Daniel and his friends ask permission not to defile themselves with the king's food. Look what Daniel chapter 1, verse 5 says. Daniel 1, verse 5. It says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. And so he gave these Hebrews Babylonian names, which had to do with worshiping false gods. So here they are. Anyway, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, to uh, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. I love the first word of verse 8. It's a wonderful word. You looking at the first word of verse 8? But, but, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So my friends, in the midst of a changing world, you must wholeheartedly set your mind in place. And by the way, you have to do it ahead of time. It's important to do it before the temptation comes to compromise. Do it ahead of time that you will not defile yourself. That you will not compromise. You will not be ashamed of the gospel. Let me give you an example. About three years ago, I got this wonderful job at Fonterra. It was the best paying job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and believe me, if I had not done what Daniel here did here, if I had not purposed in my heart ahead of time that I would not defile myself, I would have compromised under the peer pressure. Let me give you an example. Okay? Fonterra has this rule. All their employees, all their employees, at least who work in the plant, they're uh, doing the processing or forklift driving or machine operating like I was doing, uh, you, you work four days on for 12 hours, you work, four, you work four, sorry, two days, 12 hours, two nights for 12 hours, and then you have four days off. So in the process, you have to work on Sundays. So my second or first day on the job, a supervisor comes up to me and says, uh, he mentions something to me about working on Sunday, and I said, I don't work on Sundays. Oh, you don't. Anyway, I proceeded to talk to the guy. He didn't like that. He was very angry. So he went to his boss, and then I proceeded to lose that job. And, by the way, the very next day I got called back and got a job that nobody else in the entire plant got, a job from Monday to Thursday. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the point. If I had not purposed in my heart that the Lord's Day Sunday came first in my life, it was the most important day of the entire week because God comes first in my life. I worship Him and Him alone, not a job, not Fonterra, not my family. I would have compromised. I had to purpose in my heart ahead of time that Sunday is important because God comes first in my life. 
If I had been putting myself first for my family and thinking, ooh, you know, this is, this is the most money I've ever made in my life. You know, I need to compromise here. You know, I'm not going to be working every Sunday. It's just maybe one Sunday a, a month, maybe two Sundays a month, and then the next month I might have no Sundays. You know, it's okay. Just, just a couple Sundays here and there. You can compromise, Scott. It's okay. You know, you're, after all, you're doing this for your family. I could have... I could have compromised in my mind. You, you see the thinking processes there? A lot of people do that. But I had purposed in my heart that God comes first. I'm not going to defile myself. And so when the temptation comes to compromise, there's no other choice. There's only one way to live. And I give that to you as an example. That's what we all need to do in our lives. Do what Daniel does purpose in your heart ahead of time you will not defile yourself you're going to serve god and him alone and you're going to do it wholeheartedly even if it means consequences surely there's there's risk here isn't there at the very least daniel and his friends were risking embarrassment lost opportunity by taking the stand do you understand that again When you play with the big boys, you can get hurt. They didn't like that, including Daniel's fellow Israelites didn't like him standing up for the truth. They were tempted, probably. Maybe they were thinking things like this. You know, if I just eat a little food, I'll be in a more influential position, and then you're going to have opportunities to serve God because you'll have an influential position. You know, once you start climbing the power ladder... Then you'll have a position that you can tell all the people below you how great your God is. Ever been tempted to do that? They were. May I just say, my friends, this, okay? How many sins have been committed in the name of not wanting to lose an opportunity? Many sins have been committed under that philosophy. I don't want to lose an opportunity. Faithfulness to God could have required tremendous earthly loss. It could have cost them their lives. And by the way, in the stories that follow, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the threat only becomes worse. Usually it was their lives that were on the line. Remember chapter 6? Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. Those lions were hungry. Those lions were used to taking people and ripping them apart and eating them while they were alive. Do you understand how serious this is? These, these, the, consequences, the consequences were great, but, but these men were unwilling to compromise on the truth. Lesson number, true, lesson number two, God can defend his faithful servants, even before unbelievers like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. Think about these questions for a moment. How would you have advised Daniel in chapter 2 and chapter 4, when the God-given interpretation of the king's dream exalts God's kingdom and puts Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom down. What would you have said to Daniel? Or what would you have said to Daniel when chapter 6's edict came that, you know, Daniel, you're no longer allowed to pray to God. Don't do, no, don't pray to God anymore. You know, there's only one person you can pray to and you have to pray to the king. You can only pray to Darius. What about finally, what would you have said to the young men as they stood before this idol of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3? 
you know, just bow down to the idol, Daniel, and, and his three friends, and, 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 you know, that's all you have to do. What would you have said? Oh, it's very easy for us, you know, to kind of sit back, you know, after the fact. We're, we're not under that pressure. But if you were under that pressure, what would you have said? What would you have done? Oh, the easy way would be for us to be pragmatic and to compromise, right? But there is no such compromise in the book of Daniel. No such compromise. Now, some critics don't like this about Daniel. You understand that? Some critics don't like that. They, they say, Daniel, you know, he's, he kind of looks like this cardboard character. You know, there's no sins mentioned about Daniel. You realize that? There, there's no sins. He, he looks like this perfect, glowing guy. He's a cardboard character. He always does the right thing. He does the right thing all the time. And some people say, you know, that's just not real. Let's, let's get real here. Nobody does the right thing all the time. But the point of the book is not Daniel's sinfulness here. The point is his steadfastness. God called him to, if you will, put some steel into the backbone of the exiles when they were being tempted to compromise. And it's a huge compromise. Picture yourself. Let's say Indonesia invades New Zealand, okay? All the Muslims from Indonesia invade New Zealand, conquer New Zealand, and take you off to Indonesia, and you have to worship Allah. Do you understand the point? That's what's going on here. Would you bow down and worship Allah? Would you? Or would you stand up before those Muslims and say, there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. I will not worship Allah because he's a false god. What would you do? That's what's going on here. They, they were steadfast, though, at least Daniel and his three friends. And they're calling all the other exiles to put, hey, get some steel in your backbone here, okay? Yes, we're in a foreign country who worships false gods, but there's only one God, and he doesn't change. Let me give you a good example. I, I love, uh, look at Daniel chapter 3. I love the response of the three men who refused to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Daniel 3, verse 16. Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That is a good example of steadfastness. That is the example that we're called to, by the way. So the third lesson is this, my friend. Are you ready? Divine rescue cannot be assumed. So be patient and faithful. Be patient and faithful because they didn't assume divine rescue would come. They knew God could save them from the fiery furnace, but it would be wrong to assume that. God doesn't always save. God is not a God of name it and claim it. You cannot just claim something and it always be true. Do you understand that? My charismatic friends think that is the truth. But the charismatics are wrong. God is not a vending machine where you push E1 and you get that candy bar falling out in front of your face. You, 
we, we can trust that God can save, but God doesn't always save. Some guy, sometimes God allows us to be martyred. So divine rescue cannot be assumed, but in the midst of it, we should be patient and faithful. Well, in the end, Daniel's like everybody else. He dies. <laughs> he goes the way of all mortals and all leaders. He dies. But look at the very last verse. Because the very last verse of this book gives us hope. Look at the very last verse, okay? Often the last verse of a book of the Bible is very important. And this is no exception, okay? Look at chapter 12, because here's a wonderful hope in this book, okay? Look at these words carefully. Chapter 12, verse 13. But you, go your way till the end. This is God speaking to Daniel. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Amen! If that doesn't get you excited, then you're not alive. You need some reviving. Look at the book as a whole here. We can see the first six chapters, they contain all these great stories, right? Of these individual deliverances that are taking place in the present. While the last six chapters, they're corporate deliverance that takes place in the future. Now, I think those small deliverances that Daniel experienced in his life were meant to give him hope and confidence for the final deliverance that would come. Now, I take great uh, encouragement by that because that's the way it is for you and for me. That's the way it is for you and for me. You often have small deliverances in your life that God has given to you, and He's using those to give you hope for greater deliverances yet to come. They are a preview, if you will. They are a down payment on the final great deliverance that comes to all of God's people. Remember, that which appears permanent is not permanent. Only God is permanent. Only God is the one who doesn't change. And so if we are allied with God, we're going to share in His final victory. Listen, my friend. Listen to the book of Daniel and beware. Do not fully hitch your hopes, your wagon, to that that is inevitably going to change. Don't. Do not hitch your whole life to someone who God promises will fall. 